When we come together on this Good Friday, we do so not forgetting about the resurrection unto eternal life of Jesus Christ that we celebrate on Easter Day, but we do so to pause and to dwell upon that which happened on Friday. You've heard me say frequently that if we do not take sin seriously and the death of Christ seriously, then we will never take his grace or his everlasting life, the resurrection, seriously. And so while we look forward to the empty tomb today, we dwell upon the cross. We think about it and we meditate on it, knowing that through this moment, God had lessons to teach and work to do. So now hear these words from the author of Hebrews as he reflects on the death of Christ, coming from chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Continuing in verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O oh Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Before we ever read your word, O oh God, it was sprinkled with the blood of sacrifice. But your word has gained its truth by the blood of your son. Now, Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. My sweet wife, Morgan, is faithful in many ways in her service to both this church and to the community. And one of the things that she does frequently is donate blood. Now, she says that she does it for the cookies, which I'm sure is not entirely untrue. But I know that the real reason that she does it is because she has a big heart and she has a sweet giving spirit. She has the spirit of the living God. 
And it's because she can. I'll confess, I'm a big chicken. I am terrified of needles. But she goes faithfully every month. She watches her weight. She watches her blood pressure so that she can give blood. And she does it because she is healthy and will always do whatever she can to help people. But every time she goes off to give blood, it reminds me of an old story. It's probably one that I've shared with you before. There was this little boy who was told by his doctor that he could save his sister's life if he gave her a blood transfusion. The six-year-old girl was near death. She was a victim of a disease from which the boy had made a marvelous recovery just several weeks earlier. Her only chance was a blood transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the illness. And since the two children had had the same uh, rare blood type, the boy, her brother, was an ideal donor for her. When the doctor asked him if he would like to give his blood for his sister, the boy hesitated. And his lower lip started to tremble. And then he smiled and he said, Sure, Doc, I'll give my blood for my sister. Soon the two children were wheeled into the operating room. Mary was pale and thin. Johnny was robust. He was the picture of health. But neither of them spoke. But when their eyes met, Johnny grinned. And as as his blood siphoned into Mary's veins, one could almost see new life coming back into her tired body. The ordeal was almost over when Johnny's brave little voice broke the silence and he said, Doc, when do I die? It was only then that the doctor realized what the moment of hesitation, that trembling of the lip had meant. Little Johnny actually thought that in giving his blood to his sister, he was giving up his life. And in that brief moment, he'd made his great decision. It's one thing to donate blood. It's another thing to be drained of it completely. In verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 9, the author of Hebrews writes, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And in verse 22, he says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In the Bible, blood is the currency of the soul. More valuable than gold or silver, it was the only acceptable payment for peace and the only acceptable fine for sin. It was the down payment for treaties and the penalty for betrayal. Ancient treaties used blood to guarantee promises. The act of making a blood oath is to say, for your sake, I am willing to make myself weak and vulnerable and weaken myself. And I swear by these drops of blood that if I betray you, the rest of it shall be spilled and be forfeit for my life. The blood of one's family was your inheritance and your own blood was the legacy that you left your children. Blood not only represents life, it is life. Although it cannot restore life to the dead, 
it can be it can take life if it's drained a blood sacrifice is an all or nothing sacrifice because you can't take it back and the giving of blood is not something we can do without pain whenever blood is shed even in a sterile donation process whenever blood is shed there's pain involved and if we are giving that blood if you're donating your blood that point of pain becomes a point of empathy that pain that potentially reminds you or connects you to that unknown person who will receive that blood blood we donate ours he drained his. On the altar of the temple, the priests sacrificed hundreds of lambs, hundreds of cattle, hundreds of doves, day by day, week after week, year after year. Blood sacrifices given in repentance by people seeking atonement and God's crimes for both crimes, uh, God's forgiveness for crimes both great and small. For 13 centuries, the priests of Israel had offered the blood of bulls and sheep and birds and goats on the altar before the Lord. An endless cycle of sin and sacrifice. But there was actually a reason for this spectacle, for this display. A purpose to that repetition of blood. Hebrews 10.3 tells us, why the sacrifices were repeated over and over. It says, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. In other words, the purpose of this system, this system that God had put in place, the purpose of these sacrifices was to serve as a constant reminder of the brokenness and sin of fallen humanity and to remind us of our need of God's forgiveness. John says that if we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The blood sacrifices were a perpetual reminder of our condemnation and our guilt before a righteous judge. And it was an endless river of blood. I can think of no better symbol or illustration of the violence and sin and cruelty of humanity than of the constant noise and the fire and the spilled blood staining the pavement of the temple. I mentioned last night in the Maundy Thursday service that I saw a picture the other day of a Ukrainian woman, a grieving grandmother, kneeling down in the street in the midst of the rubble of her bombed-out city. And the pavement around her was stained with splashes of blood. The blood all around staining the pavement was a reminder of how awful, how evil, we can be to one another. How much animal blood does it take to atone for all of the human blood spilled by man? The blood of men, women, and children made in the image of God, in war, in crime, in abuse, in neglect. The Romans had many ways to execute a prisoner. Crucifixion was used when they wanted to make an example of someone when they wanted to do it for all the world to see. It was not just gruesome, it was a very public way to die. People were meant to see it as a means of terror and propaganda. It was meant to terrify the people into submission. Crucifixion was a statement. 
But where the Romans and the religious leaders meant it to be a statement, a reminder of their own authority and power, God used it as a statement to expose the depth of humanity's own evil and sin and depravity. It became a reminder of sin. People often ask, why did Jesus have to suffer so? Why did they have to mock him and spit on him and flog him before they killed him? Why did he have to be scourged? And the, why did the crown of thorns have to be put upon his head? The reason is simple. Jesus had to suffer so greatly because, because humanity's sin had to be utterly exposed. If the cross is proof of how much God loves us, it is also proof of how far we have fallen from God. If we ever want to question if God takes our sin, takes human sin seriously, look at the cross. That is how seriously God takes sin. The cross was grotesque because our sin is grotesque. Sin is violent and selfish and dehumanizing. We tend to rationalize it away by saying, you know what, nobody's perfect. Sure, I've got my faults, but I'm, I'm not as bad as some people. I'm not as bad as that guy over there. But as John says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. To say that sin isn't serious is to say that people who don't, excuse me, is to say that people who get hurt don't matter. If a murderer or a rapist or a thief is not brought to justice, then we are effectively saying to the victim or his or her family that you don't matter. Your son, your daughter doesn't matter. Your broken life doesn't matter. Your stolen dreams, your future, your pain doesn't matter. And to say that sinning against God is no big deal is to say that God doesn't matter. To say that it doesn't matter when we spit on God's name or hoard his gifts or ignore his authority or abuse his patience. When we take his love for granted or question his existence or manipulate his religion when it suits us. When we live our lives with a sense of entitlement instead of gratitude and then say that, no, that sin is no big deal. Then we mock his holiness and we say that God himself does not matter. But sin does matter because God matters. If we pay attention to this story, we don't just see the cross. To see the whole picture of God's judgment, we have to pull the camera back and take in the whole scene. We must pull it back far enough to see the soldiers gambling. The crowds jeering, the religious people mocking, the spectators ogling, the political leaders oppressing. His ruin shows us the result of our sin, the callousness of the soldiers, the injustice of the government, the envy and jealousy of the religious leaders. The cruelty, blame, and denial of the mob, the cowardice of the disciples, and the betrayal of Judas. Jesus hanging on the cross gives us a clear vision of the worst in ourselves because it shows us what we have done to each other 
and what we do to God through our sin. The cross was God's judgment on the state of humanity. Because the cross exposes the cruelty and callousness and indifference and apathy with which we are all burdened. It was a living display, a dying display of man's inhumanity to man. But the cross also exposes one more thing. In addition to exposing our sin, it also exposes God's great love for us. Yes, the cross shows us the horror and corruption of human sin, but it also shows us the love of God. And it shows us that this is how far God is willing to go to prove that he loves us. For the proof of God's amazing love is this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We can't forget Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That prayer was not just for the soldiers, but for all who were involved and all who witnessed his crucifixion. But that prayer also includes us. As a matter of fact, that was the point of the whole spectacle. That he would suffer for our sins so that God would pardon us. The Bible tells us that for our sin, we deserve death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And yet, if he gave us what we deserve, we would be destroyed. We would be the ones on that cross. So what does a holy God do when the children he loves commit the sin he hates? Somehow, the justice of God had to be satisfied without sending us, sentencing us all, the children that he loves, to eternal damnation. How do you do that? Jesus said, I'll take their place. And for our sake, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 10.3 says that in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins Every year. But he also tells us that the cross was the last sacrifice to remind us of our sins. A transaction took place on the cross. Mark 10 45 says that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. On the cross, Jesus took every lousy thing that you ever did and every good thing that you have left undone and he carried them in his own body. 
Jesus died on the cross for all the lousy stuff that we do as individuals and for all the lousy stuff that we do as in, in complicity, as members of groups or nations or races or classes. And he became the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Christ carried, he bore the punishment for the sins of all human beings. He atoned for them all by accepting the just punishment due for all of that sin. And so by the death of Jesus Christ, not only were we saved, but the justice of God was satisfied. Because of the cross, no sin will ever go unpunished because it was punished there. Because of the cross, no human sin has ever gone unavenged. Because Christ has taken God's vengeance in his own body. Beloved, he paid not only for every sin that you or I have ever committed, he paid for every sin that we have ever endured freeing us not only to live to serve him, but freeing us to forgive one another. And because of what Jesus did for us, instead of getting what we deserve, we get what he deserves. Glory. He became the embodiment of everything that defies God, everything that defies the Father, so that we could become the embodiment of everything that delights God. God looked at us and punished him so that he could look on him and pardon us. Jesus did not just donate his blood to us. It was drained for us. What did it cost him? Everything. What did it gain us? Same answer. Everything. Would you pray with me? Holy and everlasting God, on the cross you did not give yourself in half measure. You did not pour out your life and save something for yourself. You did not hold back any piece of yourself, but rather you allowed yourself to be stripped. You allowed yourself to be humiliated. You allowed yourself to feel pain like no one has ever felt before, and you allowed yourself to die. All because you were the only one who could possibly accomplish what needed to be accomplished, saving us and satisfying the justice of God. Oh Lord, as we look forward to the celebration of your resurrection, help us to take seriously and to dwell upon the high cost of our salvation. Because your blood was worth more than the blood of all the sinners who have ever lived 
Help us to realize the high value of your death and the eternal value of the life and the resurrection that we celebrate in the coming days. Oh Lord, our sin is terrible, but your grace is amazing. Thank you for giving your life, your blood, so that we might live. Amen.